And I'll simplify all of that. We need to learn to focus on delivering measurable stakeholder value to real stakeholders, whether we deliver code or not. Okay? We've got to get rid of the idea it's about working software. It's about people who write code. Because even in IT, we have to get rid of that idea uh, because it's it's uh, as is obvious from the statistics about failed projects, uh, it is easy to deliver plenty of code and have a totally failed, hated project. So delivering code without bugs and right functions is just not an interesting thing. Yet most of the agile disciplines don't do much about it, to put it mildly. You know, from nothing to hand waving. Uh, but uh, I, I find nothing I admire in. You know, everything from Scrum to Safe, I just say, you've got to be kidding. listening to the Scraping Toast show, a podcast that inspires you and your organization to look past the current horizon and figure out what it might mean for you to become even more effective. I'm your host, Jussi Mäkelä, and I'm an independent product development consultant. In this podcast, I go deep and explore a multitude of topics to shine some light on long lost wisdom so that you don't have to keep scraping that burnt toast anymore. Who wants to do that anyway? Do you know what's in common between Marilyn Monroe, Dr. Deming, and PricewaterhouseCoopers? Well, time to find out. In the previous episode, I had the good fortune to be talking to Kai Gilb about the secrets of product development. And in that discussion, we kept referring to his father's work multiple times. This time I thought I'd continue on that same path and get face to face with one of the absolute heavyweights in the IT business and Kai's father, Mr. Tom Gilb himself. I can promise you, this discussion is extremely relevant, especially for all of you who might have a managerial role and or the responsibility for successful IT projects in your organizations, as Tom spills out some really, and I repeat, really hard truths about the current state of things and how to maximize the likelihood of actually succeeding with your projects by adopting a systems engineering approach. We also touch on topics such as creating extremely clear and unambiguous goals, how the lack of them is causing huge problems all over the world, such as in the United Nations, how the lack of competence both from those selling IT services and those buying said services is causing catastrophic failures and mind-boggling amounts of waste of time, money and human potential, and what you actually can do about it. I must warn you though, if you don't have a thick skin, I'm sure you'll be insulted in one way or the other. Hard truths can be uncomfortable like that. Before we get to it, as usual, if you think this podcast might be useful for you or someone you know, please share it and click those buttons you're supposed to click on the various social media platforms. Not to mention subscribing to it. Don't forget to do that. And as usual, I would love to hear your opinions and feedback, so get in touch. 
You'll find the uh, contact details in show notes and on my website, scrapingtoasts.com. All right, let's get to it. Tom Gilb, this is the most exciting day for me for in a, in a long, long time. Hope it's exciting for the listeners. <laughs> yes. So as you might have guessed, the um, name of the podcast, Scraping Toasts, has a bit of a link to Dr. Deming, who is often quoted in all kinds of places and presentations. But not many people can actually claim having been a friend of his. Uh, but you can. Absolutely. What's one of the most memorable things of some of your uh, interactions? Oh, yeah. Okay, I'll tell a little bit. First, I tell how I met Dr. Deming. It was... Um, in fact, uh, uh, it was in fact in, in London, and he was holding a one-week course. Uh, Six hundred people showed up. We all paid, but one of my clients came to me and said, "Hey, I ordered an extra space. I can't get the money back from. Would you like a free place?" So I actually got in for free, but I was willing to pay, and I don't often pay to listen to anybody. But uh, Dr. Deming was famous amongst us because he'd changed the industrial culture of Japan. And we sort of wanted to find out the secret, which was statistical process control and his 14 points. Anyway, during the, um, uh, by the way, during his one week presentation, this uh, boring old man of, uh, about my age uh, had exactly one slide. And that was his 14 points. And he had one little device, which is his red balls and white balls to show something about randomness. Uh, and one whole week, right? But he did pass out some booklets. And uh, these were little booklets of his life. And, and so in the booklets, he's in Japan and there's some photographs and he's watching some Japanese kabuki dancing. Mm. And I realized he likes to go see dancing. So uh, towards the end of the uh, week, uh, Thursday, Friday, I, I walked up to him uh, in a break and, and I said, uh, seems to me you like dancing and I love, I love ballet and modern dance and all that kind of stuff. May I invite you out to the ballet with me here in London? And he said, oh, I couldn't possibly do that. And I said, well, why not? He said, because every night out of respect for my students, I have to prepare the next day. This is a dedicated man to Kaizen, to continuous mm. improvement, right? And now, by the way, he's been teaching the same course since maybe 1920 at this point. <laughs> this is 1983. Uh, but but he, in his mind, he has to prepare. And I said, well, wait a minute. Uh, what are you doing Saturday? And he said, I'm taking a Concorde to Brazil. I said, so you aren't preparing Friday night for a class on Saturday? No, I'm not. I said, gotcha. You and I are going to go to the ballet on Friday night. And he said, you got a point there. Uh, you're on. And we actually went to the Dominion Theater in Tottenham Court Road uh, and saw the um, Leningrad, I believe it was a Leningrad ballet, Russian ballet. That was our first outing together. And uh, every year thereafter, uh, I made sure I was in London for his annual London course, and I made sure I invited him out to both dinner and uh, ballet or dance. And the second time was uh, we went to see the um, um, Harlem Dance Theater or something like that. Yeah, it was a more modern uh, uh, dance, for example. 
The, the third time, uh, he said, uh, his secretary, Seal, rang me up and said, unfortunately, and I just met him at his hotel, at the Drury Lane Hotel, it was called, on Drury Lane, right next to my flats in London. And uh, he, he, uh, she said, Dr. Deming, unfortunately, can't, and I, I invited her to come to the ballet this evening at the Royal Opera House. Uh, uh, is actually the opera we were going to because there was no ballet on Friday night, but that's another story. And I invited my, I invited my friend Michael Fagan, who uh, taught me uh, software inspection, which I wrote a book on, hmm. uh, to come. And uh, she said, can't do it because he's had, uh, he got uh, ill during the Friday course. He was actually rushed off some, uh, before the course or just early, I forget. He had, he had uh, gallstones that have to be pulverized by ultrasound. They did that, and he came back and he completed his uh, Friday course. I had friends of mine who said, you know, the show must go on. Just because you had a gallstone operation doesn't mean you don't get in there and hold the promised course. So this shows you something about the dedication of uh, Dr. Uh, Deming. And uh, I, I sent him flowers that day, I remember, and got thanks for, for, for them. Um, Let's see, there are a number of other interactions. I don't know how far I, I, I should go, but uh, <laughs> actually, I'll tell you one is kind of silly. I'm on an airplane in, uh, in the U.S., and a man sitting next to me uh, was um, health secretary, uh, the minister uh, under, I think, John Kennedy. And he told me he was present when the Secret Serviceman came running in uh, to say to John Jack Kennedy, uh, Jackie is coming, Jackie is coming. And at that point, he kicked out Marilyn Monroe from the swimming pool at the White House. <laughs> but this same guy said, Dr. Deming, aha. Well, uh, I, uh, I, I, I live right near him on Butterworth Place in Washington, D.C. And I can tell you every day a busload of Japanese came past like he was a movie star. And on their loudspeaker, here lives Dr. Deming, who changed the fortunes of Japan. <laughs> Wow, that's another Deming story. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so enough enough of Deming until you say, "Tell me another Deming <laughs> yeah. story" or something. So. Yeah, that was more than expected. Thank you. I'm just going to dive right into it. It's no secret that software development and IT in general have a very bad reputation and a lousy track record. What do you think the real problem is? Okay, now we make a distinction between a clever programmer writing code. Mm -hmm. Lots of those. And uh, there will always be an army of young people who think it's fun to program and they're very good at it. Uh, personally, I gave it up uh, around early 1960s. Maybe I wrote my last, uh, maybe it was end of 60s I wrote my last programs because I figured out that uh, there were always an army of smart young people who would always be competing with me learning the newest programming language. And I couldn't even rely on my experience in an older programming language because it would become obsolete. Hmm. So I said, I better do something else if I'm going to grow old in this profession. And so I went over to things like project management, requirements, design, quality management, and uh, I leave the programming to younger, enthusiastic souls. But long story short, uh, it's, the problem is not with the programming or the programmers. Uh, the problem uh, that you're alluding to is the failed projects. Right. And I was uh, uh, just recently looking for the 20th time at the, uh, you know, you can Google failed IT projects. 
and you get 300 million hits. <laughs> but you get lots and lots of you know surveys done uh, for years, decades by some consultancy organizations saying how many totally failed projects there are, meaning they never go on the air or they're closed down, how many challenged projects, uh, that is, they were late, they were over budget, they gave bad quality, they were disappointing in some way. And the statistics are very roughly, for all IT, still about 40% total failure and another uh, 45%, 55% challenged. We're up to 95% mm. not completely successful projects. In other words, 5% deliver what people expected for the, the budget and the deadline. Now, if, um, if heart surgery had the same uh, statistic <laughs> that, uh, you know, 50% 50, 50 of all the patients died on the operating table and 45% yep. were, were left handicapped and worse than they came in, but they still lived, and 5% got a nice new heart, we would think heart surgery was an incredibly uh, dangerous, should be illegal profession. Maybe we should stop doing it. Mm. You know, I wouldn't want to walk into heart surgery with 95% chance of coming out worse than I went in. Yeah. But that's, that's the IT situation right now, and it has not changed for decades. And Agile has not changed it. Nope. Okay? And there's a reason for that, and we can get into that, but I, I'll give it to you in the short term. Uh, Agile focuses on, as I say, the primary purpose is to deliver working code to the users. That's almost mm. straight out of the manifesto. Now, the primary purpose of our projects should be, and you're going to get tired of me saying this because <laughs> I'm very repetitive, it should be delivering stakeholder values to the stakeholders, even if you write no code whatsoever. Mm. It's got nothing to do with code, even in IT systems, even in heavy, you know, if you buy the code or reuse the code, that's fine. You don't have to write the damn stuff. That's just uh, asking for trouble to write code. We've long known that reusing code that works very well is a very smart uh, software engineering tactic. Okay? Mm. It's an engineering tactic. Okay, so the problem is nothing to do with programming as such. Now, the, one of the problems is, the programmers of the world and almost all the guys who signed the Agile Manifesto uh, are in their heart programmers. And people like Kent Beck are very explicit about it. You know, I mm. love to code. I want to code. I don't want to mess about with processes anymore. I mean, he sat across me at dinner and told me that directly. We're good good friends. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, the, so the gang was uh, coding-centric in their mind. Now, uh, there are people who say you can use Agile at a higher level, and I've recently become very interested in business Agile. Uh, so business Agile said this is the way you run your business. Uh, there may or may not be code there anywhere. Okay, And, and uh, the Agile at the level of Scrum is mostly used by people who, in fact, are trying to manage the programming uh, process. So the, the problem is that a gang of well-intended, intelligent, very nice guys. They, they've all been to my home or summer cabin, mm. almost all of them. And we, we are friends. And although I criticize them in and out day and night, <laughs> uh, they mostly agree with my criticism, but they, they're sort of saying, well, if I earn a lot of money from whatever I'm doing, uh, Tom can criticize all he wants. I'm, I'm going to stick to what I'm doing. Yep, yep. I'm not going to go in Tom's direction because uh, why? You know, if you're earning a lot of money from user stories or Scrum, to mention a couple of things, why touch it? Exactly. They, they, these guys are Americans, and number one is to earn money, not to serve humanity and be idealistic. Mm. Um, okay, so 
So the gang who popularized what we call Agile today, uh, they didn't invent it. Uh, uh, I've proven that. Uh, for example, in my 1988 book, Principles of Software Engineering Management, uh, is filled with Agile, including Chapter 15, which we can give a link to, mm-hmm. which gives the history of what we call then uh, evolutionary software and other evolutionary methods outside of software. And so I have about uh, 40 case studies, software and non-software, of doing what we would today call Agile. Mm. Okay, I just sent that off to a guy listening to a, 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 a broadcast I did today. Uh, so anybody can request it or we can give them the link. But So historically, programming and non-programming have always done small increments with feedback and learning. And I was able to document that in, in my 1988 book. By the way, the 1988 book, Principles of Software Engineering Management, is the one that the Agile Manifesto guys cite as uh, their inspiration for doing Agile. That's why I'm credited as being the grandfather of Agile. Mm. Okay, they very explicitly and publicly say, Tom Gill wrote that book, I wrote that book. Uh, Mike Cohn even two weeks ago said, I named my company... Uh, uh, Mountain Goat Software after a principal in Tom Gilb's book, Principles of Software Engineering Management, and I, I respect everything he does. Okay, that's Mike Cohn about a week ago on his blog. Um, okay, so uh, th- th- these guys got inspired by my my stories, really, my history, and said, uh, let's make this, let's, let's go in for this. Let's uh, get rid of the old uh, Big Bang waterfall, and let's go for Agile, and let's make a campaign. And they were uh, extremely successful, uh, as we know now, mm. in permeating not only the programming world, but any any business manager with respect for themselves, of course, is saying or trying to do agile. That's what we can call business agility, the subject I'm going to be moving into quite heavily mm. um, shortly. Now, the problem is with what my friends did with the manifesto, and I've documented this in my book, uh, Biz, uh, uh, let's say, Value Agile. And we'll give a free copy with a link to everybody for Value Agile. I wrote that last year. And it, in excruciating depth, takes the Agile Manifesto uh, uh, point by point and says what's wrong with it. A lot of people take it for granted it's a good thing, right? Mm. And then it constructively suggests what we should do instead. And I'll simplify all of that we need to learn to focus on delivering measurable stakeholder value to real stakeholders, whether we deliver code or not. Mm. Okay? We've got to get rid of the idea it's about working software. It's about people who write code. Got to, even in IT, we have to get rid of that idea uh, because, it's, it's, uh, as is obvious from the statistics about failed projects, uh, it is easy to deliver plenty of code and have a totally failed, hated project. But delivering code without bugs and right functions is just not an interesting thing. Yet, most of the agile disciplines don't do much about it, to put it mildly. You know, from nothing to hand-waving. Hmm. Uh, but uh, I, I find nothing I admire in, you know, everything from Scrum to Safe. I just say, you got to be kidding. <laughs> I have a phrase called... Agile as it should be, you <laughs> see? And that means delivering measurable values that stakeholders want, the stakeholders 
that's agile as it should be. It should be delivering early, regularly, frequently, continuously, and until they get all the value they want. So let's take a quick pause here. I want you to really think about what Tom is saying here and what the implications are. For those primarily engaged with IT and software development, how on earth should we be delivering value if not by delivering code? That doesn't make any sense, right? But before you let your system one take the driver's seat, let's consider some relevant scenarios in no particular order. Number one, software is a liability. Every line of code you write increases maintenance costs and the likelihood of breaking something. The fastest, most secure and cheapest code is the one you never write. The next best is the code you remove. Number two, the purpose of any project is to deliver improved stakeholder values as we have now learned. As I was thinking about this, I was reminded of the uh, hashtag no software that Bob Marshall brought to my attention some years ago. As Bob puts it, people are looking to get their needs met. That is their primary concern, not whether they get shiny new software. In other words, delivering new code is a way to meet those needs. But what if there were more effective, more balanced, more optimal means to get the job done? Would you still want that software? Other ways or means, depending on the context, could include things such as buying off-the-shelf products, reconfiguring your processes and policies, training your staff, documentation, or maybe even removing some parts of your code base to simplify certain flows. So pause your judgment for a while, take a look at the hashtag and see what you find. Number three, John Seddon makes an additional and relevant point in his book Beyond Command and Control. Do you truly understand the need you are trying to meet with that software you want to develop? Or do you simply assume that writing new software to meet the need is the only possible way? Sedan argues that software and IT should come last with the buying or building, and only after you have truly understood the needs and have a well-functioning, effective and less automated process in place. To put it in another way, figure out what the right thing to do is before trying to make it more efficient. Nobody cares if you go in the wrong direction extremely fast and efficiently. All of this is of course unlikely to happen as long as we are trapped in a system where you are expected to develop software or manage software delivery or whatever your uh, title might entail. But that's an altogether different topic, maybe for a later episode. All right, back to the interview. So so if we take this what it should be, um, there's many ways of looking at software development and uh, some see it, see it as art, some see it as a craft or uh, things like that. And um, I was recently reading the book by um, uh, Steve McConnell uh, called After the Gold Rush, I think. Steve is a good old, Steve is a good old friend of mine. We yeah. talk regularly to this day. Um, but he he, um, are, he writes in in in, the, in in that book that uh, asking if software development is engineering is actually completely the wrong question to be asking, and then goes goes on to argue that the question is should software development be seen as engineering, and obviously argues the answer is definitely yes, and I I, I believe in many ways you make even a stronger case for engineering uh, right. by saying it should be systems engineering to be more precise. Yeah. Why, yeah. why is yeah. that? 
Well, notice the the title of my 1988 book. Let's see, is that 32 years ago? Mm-hmm. Principles of Software Engineering Management. So the word engineering is the 88 book. Now let's jump ahead to my 2005 competitive engineering book. And by the way, you can put a link for free digital copy of my complete competitive engineering book from 2005, right? Yep. And now it very explicitly on the cover of that book says this is systems engineering. Mm. Okay, and the only reason it didn't say systems engineering on the 88 book is that the publisher wanted to have a book tuned into the software market. We knew it was systems engineering long before 88. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's just a marketing thing. So what I I am, am doing has always been systems engineering. I mean, from 1960, when I did my first agile project, I was not particularly programming and coding I was delivering to a business uh, added capability. I was doing, uh, we had hardware and software and people and old systems, and I was doing systems engineering from 1960, step by step in 20 steps to deliver the system. Okay. So I have always, I've always tried to make the argument that uh, there's an old saying in in English, English, that uh, no man is an island. a tire of himself or isolated, you know, everybody's Mm. connected to the real world. Well, software obviously doesn't even operate without a piece of hardware to operate it. And it can't do much good if it doesn't have some data in a database to talk to. And it does no good whatsoever if no human beings are there to enjoy the fruits of it some way directly or indirectly, right? So software starts out being an environment where systems, in other words, more than coding and software is inevitably necessary to consider to succeed okay mm. so we uh, but and yet there is a culture of just staring at the algorithm and staring at the code and nothing else and it's amazing how software people don't even mention the data and databases <laughs> okay uh, just just to take a silly example where obviously data is soft too mm. and software doesn't mean programs it means non-hard things uh, like and, and, and data is the particularly interesting one. Most of my friends seem to ignore totally. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, okay, so so uh, so we've we've always had this thing with files and later databases and and things like that that we have to connect to. And yet, it's a look at Scrum and the Agile techniques and ask a very simple question: To what degree do they address data and databases? And the answer is close to nothing in a formal way. Mm. You know, it's always about very explicitly about what they call programs and software, and and by software they mean programs and algorithms and not data. And it's uh, but it's amazing how important data is. And uh, 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 well, but of course we're, we're we're starting to recognize that with big data and artificial intelligence and, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. What's the main argument for systems engineering then? Okay. The, the main argument for systems engineering, in other words, the obligation to look at the whole thing, not just the code, is that you will uh, reduce your failures and you will increase your successes because the, fa- the, the failures are caused by not looking at the other stuff. Take a simple example. Let's, let me take a simple example. Hmm. 
we, we, we just say, uh, everybody, let's talk COVID a little bit. Yeah. Okay? In Norway, Stimula, which is a, uh, a, a well-known research institution, decided they were going to be the great heroes of COVID and make an app on everybody's phone to uh, help us trace who you were together with and whether they had COVID-19. And they were going to have the first one in the world ready, like, you know, three weeks from now before anybody <laughs> else had done it. So they went ahead and they did it. Now, they took a little shortcut. They, they did not do systems engineering. They are programmers at heart. They programmed a COVID app called Smittestop, which means, um, uh, you know, stopping the, the virus. Mm -hmm. And uh, they released it and the government released it. We all downloaded uh, 2 million people out of the five or six million people in Norway downloaded it, and the government recommended it. And then some of my good friends in IT who are a little bit more idealistic, uh, like Steven Sommerfeld and Johannes Brodvall and the gang, got together and said, this thing is violating people's right to privacy, uh, guaranteed, uh, guaranteed by the laws and obligations of the GDPR of the European Union. Mm. And the reason is, it's not, it decided not to limit itself to um, collecting minimal data to help uh, tracking and tracing. They decided they're going to collect a lot of other wonderful statistics for the academics to research on, okay? In other words, more than necessary. So they were, in fact, violating the privacy laws. Now, in their mind, they were saying, so what? Uh, you know, saving lives is more important than privacy laws. Well, you know what? My friends put uh, op open this up and put the pressure on, and finally, the uh, to make a long story short, the government and the parliament shut it down and threw it away, and now nobody uses it, and it has had no use whatsoever. Mm. And by the way, even where it was being trialed, like in Drammen in Norway, they didn't really achieve anything. The thing, you know, it, it found like one person with COVID kind of thing. Uh, it, it was, you know, the usefulness and connection with it was very, very limited. So it didn't even work as advertised, but it was uh, designed to violate the GDPR privacy laws. Now, what's GDPR privacy? For me, the uh, European Union is a stakeholder, and they have laws that most countries in Europe have agreed to follow. Even Norway, outside of the European mm. Union, but sort of half a member, uh, is one of the best followers of the European laws. Okay, so the government finally discovered and got their lawyers to say, well, this thing is definitely violating our legal commitments to pri privacy, and the violation is not really necessary for saving people's lives, so that argument doesn't apply. But this Simula Labs, which is now in disrepute as an IT gang, uh, ignored it consciously, in spite of warnings before they released it, in spite mm -hmm. of from my friends who kept on saying, you can't do this, it's violating privacy. And they said, doesn't matter, we got to save the nation for privacy. But what they were doing was they weren't taking a systems engineering approach. They weren't saying, who were all the stakeholders? And obviously, I mean, everybody, we knew that the privacy laws were a stakeholder here, right? And, and uh, you know, what is, uh, is there something, a greater stakeholder power than like saving the lives of people? And the answer is irrelevant <laughs> because you don't need to violate the privacy laws to save the lives. You know, there wasn't a reasoned systems engineering process. So the guys at Simita just sort of uh, pushed everybody away and say, we have the code ready. Everybody can download it. And they did hmm. and wasted everybody's time. Now, they could have maybe not violated the privacy laws and got uh, some 
uh, an app out there that really did some good, but they totally failed to do it because they weren't, uh, they didn't have a systems engineering approach. They weren't looking at the privacy laws. They weren't balancing it against lives. Uh, they were just writing code to detect that somebody had been near somebody. Mm. So now that's, uh, uh, by the way, we have more failures than that. Uh, there's a big medical system called Axon here in Norway, which also has finally had to go to the government and also, you know, uh, failed to think about stakeholders and systems engineering. And we'll get into that if you like at some point. Mm. If not, I've mentioned it aloud. Yeah, I think we have had a, <clears throat> our own share of extremely uh, well, well-known failed project here in uh, Sweden. Right. Every government, <laughs> uh, including the British, every government has its failed large government project. Yep. And uh, by the way, we have equally many failed private projects, but government sort of has to go public mm. by, by law and the private people can hide it. That's yeah. the only difference. But now it, it is, it all boils down to incompetence of IT people mm. In managing what they're doing, and and, and well, there are many reasons. Uh, the analysis of all these people on the web analyzing it, it all boils down to communication about requirements and designs. Mm. Okay, bad communication. You know, a requirement is you need to follow the GDPR. If you really boil it down to its essentials, what makes an engineer an engineer then? Now, I have formal definitions of engineering. And by the way, uh, another thing we can put on the list um, is uh, I have a glossary of terminology mm -hmm. called my Planguage gl Concept Glossary. And uh, if you remind me, I'll give a link to the big glossary. Sure. There's a smaller version of it, 10%, in the competitive engineering book we've already agreed to give people. Mm -hmm. But um, to make a uh, okay, but I define engineering there. Okay, so I have a formal definition. What it is, what it isn't. But let's let's uh, forget that for the moment. Um, uh, my, uh, by the way, my favorite definition of engineering, which I refer to there, there's a guy called Professor Billy V. Cohen, K-O-E-N, University of Austin, Texas, professor of mechanical engineering. Mm. And he's a friend of mine, had for many years. And he wrote a book basically called uh, What is Engineering? And he tried to get down to the core of it And what he found it was, it was terribly agile, is the interesting <laughs> thing. He, he said it was the use of heuristics. That's what I call principles. Mm. Remember my book, Principles right. of Software Engineering Management? Yeah. There are 144 principles in my principles book. Okay, The use of heuristics to guide people into uh, basically achieving their aims and goals. Now, one of the heuristics is you get feedback So that's when the sprint is measuring what happened, measuring, and that's key engineering idea. Mm. You know, just sort of sniffing at it, saying, "Oh, nobody complained. It must be okay." <laughs> that's not engineering, okay? But measuring it and said the uh, availability went to ninety-five percent, but we're aiming at ninety-nine percent. That's not good enough. That is engineering feedback, mm. okay? So let's simplify a little bit. When you start doing numbers all over the place you are probably doing some form of science or engineering. When you have just nice-sounding words all over the place, which is the dominant paradigm in enterprise architecture and IT mm. and management and politics, all over. you're not doing engineering or science of any kind. So so our, the big problem, I have just, if you say, Tom, you can only say one thing on this project, one thing that has to be better, and I would say, quantification of critical stakeholder values. Mm. 
We're not there yet. We don't even know who the stakeholders are, like the GDPR, the European law. We don't even know exactly how uh, private it has to be. And and so the the Simula gang didn't figure that out and didn't do it. Hmm. And we don't uh, engineer the system to be that private and protective of personal data, okay? And, uh, and and it's just not on the agenda because we're not doing the systems engineering, hmm. okay? We're writing the code as fast as we can to win the race to get the code done. And what happens? Thrown out, total failure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when will my programming friends wake up? Well, half of them have woken up. There's a whole gang of 60 IT people led by Johannes and Seaman and other good people and they are making very public waves about the bad IT projects so that the government is forced to wake up because it's in the biggest newspaper, it's on the television channels and things like that. So there's a good gang there that's really working hard mm. to um, wake up the the um, narrow-minded IT people who are among us. Yeah. Um, Did I tell you what engineering was yet? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that was. Uh, there's one more. There's one more thing in yeah. Billy Cohen's definition. He says not only do we listen to the feedback, but we uh, now this is feedback from what people might call sprints. Mm. Put it in at current agile terms, the the little cycles. And he says if the feedback is negative, you have to be um, in such a situation that you can remove the offending sprint and get back to the good situation you were before. Mm. It is revert to previous things. Now, some people take steps like signing a 10 year non-revocable contract, take a simple example, which has nothing to do with code and they're locked in, you know, it would cost yeah. billions to revoke the contract if you tried to do it. <laughs> uh, that's, that's very bad systems engineering that you, you have committed and, and rebuilding a whole system with new hardware and software Uh, which is done on the very large uh, uh, government systems, for example, Mm. uh, is another example of irrevocable steps, okay? So uh, uh, Agile should be, uh, all the steps should be revocable. Mm. In other words, if you get a feedback saying this is bad, you should rip it out real quick and get back to a good state and then say what went wrong, let's try again. And Now that is uh, Billy Cohen's definition of engineering. And it is, in fact, a definition of agile. Hmm. And if you re- now you will find that in the uh, in the competitive engineering book under engineering or systems engineering, you'll find the quotations from Billy Cohen, and he's got uh, great books and papers which are available and videos. I recommend K O E H N, the the master of thinking. What is engineering? Yeah. There's going to be a whole bunch of links in the show notes. I'll, uh, <laughs> Good. Sure. Well, we're not <laughs> done yet. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, so, uh, yeah, we've been already referencing to a number of your books and things like that. You've had a, an extensive career and you've had a time to write multiple uh, books and uh, develop methods and tools for systems engineering and delivering successful projects um, and uh, the book that you already mentioned uh, competitive engineering i think it came out in 2005 is sort of uh, right a, a culmination of it all and and the most current description of how to do proper systems engineer engineering uh, would that yeah. be a correct statement yeah it, it is the gold standard because uh, competitive engineering 
is um, it is my standard and my standards for the planning language for evolutionary delivery and for quality control. So it is filled with defined processes and defined rules and defined terms Mm. and defined measures. So uh, in a way, and it's not an easily readable uh, book at all. Uh, uh, I've had good people say it took me an hour to read the first page. (laughs) Uh, But I, but I, but I also have friends who, there's a guy called Frederick Gibson who runs graph metrics in uh, San Francisco, which I'm involved with now, very exciting new technology. Uh, But he's an architect by trade and he's uh, building extremely advanced systems for the construction of building industry and other industries. Hmm. And he rang me up and said, Tom, you don't know me and I'm not your IT crowd. Uh, I, I'm an architect by trade, but uh, I have read your competitive engineering book. Okay. So I'm, it, the book was aimed at IT and system engineering people, but not at architects. So I was quite surprised. Mm-hmm. And he told me what he was doing, which was mind-blowingly advanced. You wouldn't believe technology. Uh, but that's uh, – and, and I, he said it is the founding framework for my company and my ideas. Mm. Yeah. Wow. What, what, so, uh, but but it's not an easy book to read. Uh, so I have lots of more interesting, uh, sorry, more, more easy to read books floating around. Mm, yeah. Even the earlier Principles of Software Engineering Management book is easier to read. But if you if you want to say I want to implement these methods in my corporation, then you need the competitive engineering book so you can copy with my permission the standards for processes and definitions and measures and everything else. Well, what are some of the key highlights or aha moments during all those decades you've been developing these things that ultimately led to what you describe in, in that book? Okay. Um, I kept on from as early as about 1960, where I was, uh, my first consultancy gigs, I was uh, helping an insurance company acquire their first computers. And I realized that it was not a matter of acquiring the fastest computer. Everybody was uh, impressed by the speed of computers compared to, say, punch card equipment. Uh, That this company was very mature, and they understood that they had to acquire a computer from a supplier who would be in business in five to ten years. And early computer suppliers were continually going out of businesses, just like startups do today. Okay. So, uh, so that one of the factors was, what is the probability this company will be in business in five years? Okay. Long story short, by the way, we chose IBM, and they're still in business. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody else we looked at is out of business now. But I, I realized in 1960 that um, my, my project of advising my client to choose a computer required multiple values. Or one example of one value is, will they be in business to service us, mm-hmm. right? Now, so so th- that's when I understood that multiple values, not one dimension, is important. Okay? Now, if you take a look at something as simple as Scrum, and my good friend Jeff Sutherland and his books, uh, you know, twice the output at half the mm. cost, and and it, okay, his emphasis is continually on one dimension. You know, we can do six times more with Scrum or twice as much as any other method. Now, that's what I call one-dimensional thinking. And some people like that, and some people need that. And he's obviously discovered that sells, right? But there's much more to Agile than how fast. If if you're doing the wrong thing, 
like Smittestop in, with Simula in Norway. You know, it doesn't matter you do it 10 times faster. It's going to be a scandal and everybody's going to throw it away anyway. Mm. So who cares whether it went six times faster or six times slower? Wouldn't it be better to go half the speed and succeed every time to put the question at an extreme level, right? Yeah, yeah. So, okay, so one-dimensional thinking, which people are guilty of, me too, everybody is, we like to simplify the world. You're going to buy a, a, a PC uh, or a, a, a phone, you know, and you're, uh, somebody says, what's the main reason you bought it? They'll tell you that one dimension, you know, like it was cheap or it has a great screen or it's good at taking photographs, etc. right? Everything we humans evaluate, whether it be the, the uh, person we're going to try to live the rest of our life with or the company we're going to join or the education we're going to take, there are multiple values that we have to think about simultaneously. Uh, it starts with being at least a handful, called five, hmm. and maybe up to 10 critical values you really should look at, even though there are 20 or 30, you at least need to look at those top 10, I call them, critical values. And, and so the, what I learned in 1960 is the world needs multi-value, multi-dimensional thinking. Okay? Now, at that point, some of the multi-dimensions we were looking at, like speed of the computer, everybody could quantify. Price of the computer, everybody could quantify. Uh, delivery time of the computer, everybody could quantify. But, but uh, things like probability that they would be in business in five years, well, we could put a number on it, but understanding what the number was Estimating it correctly, very, very difficult stuff to put mildly. Nobody really knew. It's like, you know, when will the COVID virus be finished? Mm. <laughs> when will the vaccine come? Everybody knows that nobody really knows. We're all making wild guesses, and some of them are very, very bad. Okay. So uh, now, uh, uh, but, but for example, things like the availability or reliability of the computer. The early computers were at best 90% available and 10% broken down or being serviced. Right now, today they're much better. They're they're mm. more at the ninety nine point nine eight level. But one major consideration was the availability because a company doesn't want it broken down in the middle of something really important they're doing. Right. So, uh, uh, but we knew engineers knew how to quantify availability, although IT people didn't. But we knew it was percentage of being up. That was already firmly established even at that time. But there were other things that began to crop up, like uh, usability, user-friendliness. Okay, Now, if, if you go to like uh, the uh, NASA moon things, they were very, very good at quantifying a lot about user-friendliness of a spacesuit and all that. They had to be. Mm. But uh, the IT business knew close to nothing about user-friendliness, let alone quantifying it. And even to this day, the most frequently asked question on my courses when I say we can quantify everything is can you quantify usability? Now, by the way, if you remind me, I'll give you some links to quantification of usability, some talks I've held, okay? Mm -hmm. But some of it is in the competitive engineering book in chapter five under usability, okay? Now, and then another thing popped up, it was security. You know, when you, a whole corporation or hospital, as happened this year, gets invaded and destroyed by hackers, uh, interest turns to security. And you can't just wave your hand and say, we want great security. You'd better quantify the probability you will detect the hackers and how quickly and, and the damage you will prevent. And you better quantify all of it. And you'd better engineer it, design it, architect it, so you have reasonable but never perfect levels of security. Okay? Hmm. So, secure, so, so things like usability and security started emerging 
And it turns out none of the IT people quantified any of that stuff. What they did was say, oh, well, the, um, the solution to usability is to have a nice graphical user interface like Apple. Or the solution to security is to do encryption. In other words, what they did was they didn't know how to articulate what they wanted, how much security, how much usability. They just threw in a design that seemed pretty good and hoped that if they did that, it'd work pretty good. <laughs> that's not that's not engineering. That's closer to craftsmanship, which says we use what our grandfather taught us was good shit. Hmm. Okay. And all honor to good craftsmen and good craftsmanship, but in, in in rapidly changing technology, grandfather's solution might not work anymore. And that's why you need engineering and science to deal with the new things that grandpa did not know about and cannot advise you on. Okay? So we need to move for large, complex IT systems, which are constantly in this uh, incredible Change. Think big data, artificial intelligence, and and, and net uh, internet three, and on and on. When um, uh, graph metrics is in the middle of about six major technological changes being applied, that you can't use the you know what what you learned ten years ago, let alone what your grandfather taught. Okay, craftsmanship mm. won't work. Uh, you, you need to deal with the unknown. You need to specify what you need to have as a government in five to 10 years. You need to engineer it so that you can rebuild your system incrementally as the technology becomes available and cost-effective. You need to design an architect for the unknown in the after you started delivering your system. In other words, you have to constantly be dealing with an unknown future in systematic ways. And that's what science and engineering has always been very good at, but IT has not even had a reasonable try. Uh, remember, most of IT is not interested in what I do and teach at all. They just want to keep on coding and they want to go from Scrum to Safe, or they want to they want to uh, like at, at the Norwegian Social Security Administration, where they had an enormous public failure. Uh, I heard a lecture recently from a, a guy. He's busy teaching them XP instead of mere Scrum, hmm. and XP I'll give you is much better than mere Scrum, and people are beginning to wake up to that fact. But uh, XP is not going to solve this gigantic institution's problems of totally failing to deliver improved social security systems after 10 years and 5 billion kroner of trying to do it. <laughs> uh, they, need to de they need to go to another form of agile. The form of agile is delivering improvements in the social security system for the social security employers and users, not XP, however good it is as a programming technique, right? Mm. And, and this requires them to, to look at their stakeholders and the values much better, to decide that the job is delivering values to stakeholders, not delivering, you know, uh, like uh, pair programming, coding, and things like that. That's all. That's nothing wrong with that. It just isn't the solution for social security users. It'll give better code for the wrong purposes, because they don't even know what the right purposes are. They haven't looked at their stakeholders. They haven't looked at the values. And if they've looked at the values, they're bullshitting them, you know, better security, better user-friendliness, <laughs> instead of engineeringly pinning down exactly what these 
qualities are, aiming at them and using engineering uh, to measure that they really are step-by-step, you know, evolutionary Mm. value delivery steps, I call it, call it a sprint if you like. Uh, They're delivering the values. Uh, The reason these large government projects have failed is they've never even tried to deliver the values. Mm. They never talk about it. They just talk about, uh, they fooled the politicians into thinking they can program for eight years and spend uh, the newest Axon project has a budget of 22 billion Norwegian kroner and eight years. This is the uh, e-health project for one journal for one patient. That's all they're trying to do is get the data together. <laughs> uh, they've, they spent eight years in a pre-project and spent millions and millions of kroner in a, what has been a, um, revealed as a corrupted system where this is all public, so I'm not naming and shaming anybody isn't out there. PwC has uh, managed to take control of the project and pay themselves from government money mm. and nobody nobody else. for. And they've done this for eight years. And now they're asking the government to spend another eight years, guess if that would be 24 years before they're really done, <laughs> and spend 22 billion Norwegian kroner. I didn't say million. I said 22 billion is a lot of money, but you know what? That will be 100 billion before it's done if history is any guide. And 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 the, so in 24 years, spending 100 billion kroner, we'll have another failed project to do nothing more sensational than take my medical data and put it in one record. Mm. Now, how ridiculous can you get? Well, this has uh, Afton Post in our biggest newspaper revealed all of this. And uh, so the government has been forced to deal with it, and they're basically having hearings about it right now, and they're going to write reports and and hopefully shut down the stupid project. By the way, this project, these people, I offered to teach them for free how to do my services on three different levels, including the health minister, Mr. Haya. And the answer was, we don't need your ideas. Hmm. Okay. Now, that was before they're all, they all got their back to the wall, fighting, being shamed and named as totally incompetent, wasting the public's uh, trust and money, okay? And even today, they probably don't realize that if they had used my methods, they might have identified some of these factors that have caused the problems they're into today. But their feeling was, we don't need your technology, Tom. You know, after all, we're using Scrum, we're being agile or something like that. <laughs> Okay, and they don't see the connection. The government ministers and the and the uh, e health group, they don't see the connection between what I might teach. It's it's just alien for them. You know. That's it for this time. I'm still finding my way with this podcast, so this time I will publish this interview as two separate, slightly shorter episodes. We'll pick up the discussion in the next episode that will be coming up shortly. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it got you thinking instead of leaving you with a lukewarm feeling. You're the judge, so let me know. Until next time, stay safe.